This morning, we're reading from the book of 1 Corinthians, which you'll find in the New Testament if you'd like to follow along. It's past the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, the book of Acts, and Romans, and then you'll find 1 Corinthians. Chapter 15 is near the end of this letter, which Paul is writing to the church in the city of Corinth. The church in Corinth had some questions about the resurrection. They knew about Jesus' resurrection, and they had heard the promise that the dead would be raised when Jesus returned. So this wasn't a completely unfamiliar concept. Even some Jews, like the Pharisees, believed that there would be a resurrection of the dead. But others, like the Sadducees, believed that this life was all there would be. Some people within the church at Corinth were making a similar claim. Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, they'd say, and we won't be either. This life is all there is. And that's what Paul is arguing against in 1 Corinthians 15. In the first half of the chapter, Paul argues that Jesus was truly raised from the dead and that we will be too. In this section that we're reading today, Paul wraps up his argument by responding to another way his opponents might try to debunk the resurrection. As we read, here are a few things to listen for. First, the objection that Paul brings up. Second, how he answers it. And third, what he wants the Corinthians to do in response. This passage is long and it's dense. It's also beautiful and powerful. As we turn to the gift of God's word, let's pray. Holy Spirit, you are already nearer to us than we are to ourselves. As we hear your word, turn us toward you and guide us so that in your light we may see light. In your truth we may find freedom. And in your will, we may discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Listen for the word of the Lord. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, and the moon another, and the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So what is written? The first man, Adam, became a living being. 
The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed." For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Imagine that you are in Narnia, a world where animals talk and magic is real. And imagine that you're deep underground in a vast system of caves. It's dark and dank, and the ceiling feels close over your head. You've been there for what seems like days or maybe weeks, searching for Narnia's lost prince. And you have finally found him. All you want now is to get back to the surface and breathe that first breath of fresh air and feel the sun on your face. But standing between you and your way home is the powerful witch who rules the underground kingdom. This, as you might recognize, is the situation of Jill, Eustace, and Puddleglum in C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair. When they tell the witch they want to go back above the ground, she tries to put a spell on them to convince them that there is no real world above the ground. Whatever they say about the real world, she questions in order to trick them. When they mention seeing the sun, she asks, what is it? To explain, they compare the sun to a lamp, only to fall right into the witch's trap. You see, she says, you can only tell me the sun is like the lamp. Your sun is a dream. There is nothing in that dream that was not copied from the lamp. The lamp is the real thing. The sun is but a tale, a children's story. Trapped both rhetorically and magically, 
our heroes are all but ready to admit defeat. The Apostle Paul is responding to a similar argument in this passage. He's using a rhetorical strategy that was common in Greek writing of his time. He states his point, and then he imagines rebuttals that his opponents might have, and then he responds to them. Here, Paul suggests that someone might ask, well, how exactly are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have? In that setting, these aren't really honest questions. They're leading questions. They're designed to trap. They don't have clear answers. So Paul's imaginary opponent is using them to fish for responses that they can pick apart to disprove the resurrection. You see, they might say, your answer doesn't make sense. Your resurrection is a dream, and there is nothing in that dream that was not copied from your life now. This is the only life. The resurrection is but a tale, a children's story. Paul's answer is to point out that these questions are unanswerable. If you have a seed that you plant, he says, you have no idea what the plant will look like when it's grown. You can't tell what a strawberry looks like from a single strawberry seed. Or what the sun looks like from studying the moon. They're completely different. In a similar way, Paul says, you can't tell what our bodies will be like after the resurrection by looking at our bodies now. The pre-resurrection body is perishable, and the post-resurrection body is imperishable. They're the same body, but they're also so different that we can't really compare them. And as far as Paul is concerned, what the body will be like or how this will happen doesn't actually matter right now. He doesn't buy into these trick questions. Instead, he points to the simple truth. The resurrection is real. The resurrection is real, and it isn't about people coming back as ghosts. There's a real bodily resurrection. Jesus was resurrected in an actual physical body. His own disciples didn't even believe it. The Gospel of Luke tells us that they thought Jesus was a ghost until he ate a piece of fish in front of them and told them to touch his hands. Paul is convinced that the resurrection is a physical reality. This is what he's explaining when he's talking about a natural body and a spiritual body. The English doesn't really do him justice. The Greek word that Paul uses for a natural body doesn't actually mean a physical body. The word is suke, which is often translated as soul. But there's much more to it than that. As Paul uses it here, suke means a living being, something alive. And being alive includes having a body that dies. It's a body that has to live with weakness and decline and eventually death. It means being on this side of our resurrection. A spiritual body is in the future, on the other side of the resurrection. It doesn't die or decay or give in to temptation. It's imbued with glory and eternal life in Christ. And Paul declares, here's the mystery. The body that dies and the body that doesn't 
are actually the same body. We will all be changed, Paul says in verse 51. Not remade or destroyed and then made new, but changed. Jesus' body is still his same body. His hands and feet and side still show the scars of his crucifixion. But it isn't the same as it used to be. He appears to the disciples in a locked room. His body is changed and glorified. Paul says in verse 53 that this resurrection body is kind of like changing clothes. The perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. And when that happens, the flesh and blood that could not inherit the kingdom of God are changed and made ready for that very kingdom. This past Thursday was Ascension Day. Ascension Day comes 40 days after Easter, and it's the day that marks when Jesus ascended into heaven. It doesn't get quite as much attention as a day like Easter or Christmas or even Pentecost, which is coming up next week. It's a quiet kind of holiday that makes a huge difference for our faith. The story of the Ascension tells us that Jesus ascended to heaven physically. That is to say, when he ascended to heaven, he didn't become a disembodied spirit. He descended as a person with arms and legs, hands and feet, a working brain and a beating heart. And this may not seem all that significant, and it might be kind of a strange thing to think about, but it does make a difference. It means that there is room for our physical selves in God's presence. And that's actually important for what Paul is trying to say to the Corinthians and to us. Because the resurrection is real and physical, we know that our physical lives now matter to God. We have hope that doesn't end in death. If the resurrection isn't real, Paul says, our lives and our faith are meaningless. If death has the final word, nothing really matters. It all ends. But this is the good news. We have resurrection hope. Death loses. The promise from long ago is fulfilled. In verses 54 and 55, Paul quotes Isaiah and Hosea, two Old Testament prophets. Death has been swallowed up in victory, they say. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The difficulty of a passage like this is that we aren't there yet. Jesus has won the victory over death, but for now, we still have to face it. Even though we know that death has been defeated, it still seems like death's sting is everywhere. It's in the hospital room where the cancer diagnosis lands deep in our bones. It's in the water rushing over levees from the Arkansas River and forcing people to evacuate their homes. It's standing at the side of a grandfather's grave in northern Michigan, holding an umbrella for the woman who married him 64 years ago. Death is right here. And Paul isn't denying that death still stings. What Paul is saying is that ultimately, death has lost the battle. 
The real sting of death, its power, its finality, the weight of sin, is swallowed up in victory. Resurrection gets the final word. God gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet we live in the space between death and resurrection, the already but not yet. So how do we live in that tension? After 57 verses of arguing and explaining, Paul finally arrives at the point. Verse 58, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Although we live with the reality of death, we know that the reality of the resurrection is bigger. If death feels so powerful, we can hardly begin to imagine just how much more powerful resurrection is. And that is our hope. Because the resurrection is real, our lives now matter. What we do now is not pointless. Even in the face of death, we can stand firm. We can give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord because we know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. And perhaps we can be a bit like Puddleglum. In the silver chair, it's Puddleglum the pessimist, Puddleglum the wet blanket who stands up to the witch and her magic spell. Suppose you're right, he says to the witch. Suppose we have only made up the sun and the moon and all those things. In that case, the made-up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. That's why I'm going to stand by the made-up world. I'm on Aslan's side, even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it. I'm going to live as like a Narnian as I can, even if there isn't any Narnia. And of course, the witch is wrong. There is Aslan, and there is Narnia. And because of Puddleglum, the heroes defeat the witch and escape the caves. They make it back to the fresh air and the sun shining over Narnia, and Aslan, the great lion, is there to greet them. Puddleglum stands firm, and his labor is not in vain. What he does matters. And how much more does our labor matter? Since we serve the victorious, risen King, who sees when we give ourselves to the work of the Lord. The gluten-free meal we learn to make for our brother who's juggling treatment schedules. The homes we help rebuild after the flood finally recedes. The afternoon we spend getting a widowed grandmother onto our family phone plan. In these and other small and large ways, we live out of our resurrection hope. And we live in that hope when God gathers us around the table for a resurrection feast, a brief taste of the celebration to come, when death is swallowed up in the final victory. And until then, we can stand firm in the Spirit's power. We can give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord because we know in the promise of the resurrection 
that our labor is not in vain. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.